Welcome this evening to part five of this teaching series in the book of Daniel. Uh, thank you for taking time to listen. Daniel's a, a big book, isn't it? Not really in length, uh, but in its themes. The book of Daniel contains some big Bible themes and we can also almost see the whole story of the Bible contained in the book of Daniel. And we're going to find that even more the case as we move towards the second half of the book uh, when we get into the visions. Before we look at Daniel chapter 5 this evening, let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you again that we can gather around your word. We ask that this evening you would help us to listen carefully to your word. Lord, we pray that we would not just listen, but that your word would take root in our hearts. We pray that we wouldn't just know your word, but that your word would become part of us. Help us, Father, to receive it humbly, we pray. For you've said in your word that you'll look upon the one who's humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at your word. So this evening we pray that you would save us from pride. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the first four chapters of Daniel, we've seen repeatedly that people cannot oppose the Lord God and his kingdom and win. The message of Daniel is that, is that God rules, that he's building his everlasting kingdom, that Jesus is king even when everything around us seems to say that he's not. But sometimes it doesn't look like that, does it? Especially for those who live in Babylon. From the perspective of Babylon, it's the king of Babylon who looks to be the powerful one. Remember how the book starts. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Right at the start we see in those first three verses uh, two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And remember that they both stand for more than just ancient historical cities. Babylon is a picture of humanity organised in opposition to God. Jerusalem, well, that's the city of God. And at the start of the book, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the one kingdom that counts. It looks like the king of Babylon is in control. And the articles from the temple of the God of Israel are now placed in the temple of the God of Babylon. But looks can be deceiving. And even though it looks like Babylon rules, even though it looks like King Nebuchadnezzar is the one with power, we know even from uh, those early verses that it's God who's in control. Because verse 2 says it's the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go now to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, it may be worth pausing the recording and reading through the whole whole of chapter 5 and then under the three headings on your handout you've got some questions so read through the passage look through those questions uh, and then we'll work through the study okay first of all chapter 5 verses 1 to 12 and our first heading is fragile pride Right at the start of chapter 5, we realise that things have changed in Babylon. Uh, without any introductions, we meet a new king, King Belshazzar. 
Uh, for a long time, outside of the Bible, there is no historical record of any ruler in Babylon called Belshazzar. So the critics use this as evidence to declare that the book of the Bible was historically unreliable uh, and cannot be trusted. But then actually, uh, documents were found showing that Belshazzar was indeed a ruler in Babylon. He was the son of a king who was known uh, to history, King Nabonidus. He was co-regent with King Nabonidus. Uh, King Nabonidus was his, his father. And they ruled together from 552 BC to 539 BC. While Nabonidus was King Belshazzar's father, it was actually Belshazzar who lived in the palace in Babylon. His father lived many miles from the city. This also explains why in verse 16, Belshazzar makes the promise to Daniel to make him the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's because position number one and position number two are already taken by King Nabonidus and his son, uh, King Belshazzar. It's also worth noting that the visions of chapter seven and eight of Daniel, which we've not looked at yet, they actually happen before the events of chapter five. Daniel has the visions of chapter seven and eight during the reign of King Belshazzar. The events of chapter 5 take place on the very last day of the rule of King Belshazzar. But we'll think more about that when we get to chapter 7. In verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5, we see what kind of king Belshazzar is. He's an arrogant and a proud king. Belshazzar is throwing this great feast for a thousand nobles. Can you imagine putting on a feast for a thousand people? It was going to be a night of drunken revelry. The wine was running freely and all the king's wives and concubines are there. Why are they having a feast? We're not told. I presume it's because, well, King Belshazzar can. He's the king. He can do what he wants. And this proud king decides to indulge himself in some symbolic muscle flexing. Verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And just in case we'd missed where these uh, gold cups came from, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. These weren't the emergency cups that they were getting because they'd run out of drinking vessels. This is a deliberate and calculated act. This is proud Belshazzar flaunting his power and shaking his fist at the God of Israel. This is the God who his ancestor, King Nebuchadnezzar, came to worship. But here, Belshazzar wants to try to show everyone that the God of Israel has no power in Babylon. And so they drink a toast to the gods of Babylon in the cups that come from the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver as bronze and iron and wood and stone. That verse 4 is reminiscent, isn't it, of the image from the dream in chapter 2. Can you remember the the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, that really tall image, head of gold, silver, bronze, iron. Here, this feast is a celebration of human kingdoms. 
in opposition to God. It's pride. The king of Babylon sits in safety behind his great walls and he thinks he is untouchable. The power has gone to his head. And in a way, that's understandable, isn't it? King Belshazzar has the power of a Babylonian king. Babylonian kings seem to hold almost godlike power. They seem to be able to do whatever they please. If you look ahead to verse 19, it describes the power of a Babylonian king. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. And even though Belshazzar's pride is inexcusable, it's perhaps understandable that having that kind of power would make you proud. And this kind of pride is alive and well today, isn't it, in the 21st century? Do you remember that advertising campaign that went on the side of London buses? In big letters it read, there is probably no God. So stop worrying about it and enjoy your life. That motto could have been written across the wall behind King Belshazzar as he banqueted. The same kind of pride can fill our hearts when we sit in our comfortable homes with cupboards full of food and on-demand entertainment at the click of a button. As we see Belshazzar's pride in chapter 5, we should know this chapter is not going to be pleasant for this king. The closing words of chapter 4 tell us that, don't they? Remember Nebuchadnezzar's final words? He said of the God of heaven that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And if there's ever a scene of someone walking in pride, it's it's Belshazzar here at the start of chapter 5. But this pride that we see of Belshazzar's is a fragile pride. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. What a change would have come over the atmosphere in that banqueting hall. One minute drunken revelry, the next minute sober fear as this disembodied hand begins inscribing into the plaster of the wall of the palace. As he's done already in the book of Daniel, the God of heaven breaks in upon the pride of Babylon and the king becomes a trembling wreck. Verse six, his face turned pale And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. Before the finger of God, the pride of Belshazzar disintegrates. It's a fragile pride. This is why King Belshazzar needs to give a feast. He doesn't give a feast because he is generous and he wants to share what he has. He gives a feast because he needs to bolster his pride. He needs to be the head of a thousand nobles. Belshazzar could never kneel and wash feet because he's proud and that pride is fragile. Now in the twinkling of an eye, his weakness is seen by all as the colour drains from his face and it's heard by all as his knees knock together. What does Belshazzar do? If you look at verse 7 to 9, 
we can see that's par for the course now, isn't it? The specialists are called out again. The combined wisdom of Babylon. And even when they are tempted with royal clothing and royal positions and royal jewellery, they cannot read the writing or not even tell the king what it means. If ever there's a bunch of people that deserve the sack, it's these guys, isn't it? They were probably getting a good wage and yet every time they turn up in the book of Daniel, every time someone needs real answers to real questions, they, they've just got nothing. The result? Verse 9. So the king became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. It's all very embarrassing, this scene, isn't it? It's chaotic. And then into the chaos of the palace comes a voice of calm in verse 10. This is the voice of the queen, or probably more likely uh, the queen mother. She'd heard all the calamity that was going on in the banquet hall. And verse 10 almost sounds humorous, doesn't it? The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came, came, into, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed and don't look so pale. I'm not sure how you stop looking so pale. Did she expect him to put some makeup on? But then the queen has some good news. She reminds King Belshazzar of Daniel. It seems that since the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel has been sidelined. The former head of the civil service must have been demoted. But the queen, the queen mother, she remembers Daniel. She remembers his divine wisdom and understanding. And she seems as absolute confidence that Daniel will be able to tell the king what the writing means. Call for Daniel, she says, and he will tell you what the writing means. Verse 12. So that's the king's fragile pride. And then we move on to hear of foolish rejection. Foolish rejection, verses 13 to 23. This Daniel is summoned, he's brought before the king. The king checks, checks his credentials and you can almost see Belshazzar looking down his nose at Daniel as he speaks, can't you? Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? The king explains to Daniel the failure of the wise men of Babylon. Sure, Daniel's very familiar with that by now. He gives Daniel the same promises as he's promised them, the royal robes, the royal jewellery, the royal titles. He says, now I have heard, verse 16, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But for Daniel, these promises of gifts and power are meaningless. Daniel has his eyes fixed on the, the kingdom of God and these incentives are no incentives at all to Daniel. He knows that the promises of Babylon are as fragile as the king's pride. In fact, any power Belshazzar thinks he has to confer on others is going to have disappeared by morning, along with Babylon itself. So Daniel politely declines verse 17 then Daniel answered the king you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else nevertheless I will read the writing for the king and I will tell him what it means except Daniel doesn't go on to read the writing to the king at least not straight away instead he spends 
quite a bit of time preaching to the king. Imagine the scene. Daniel by this time is an older man, probably in his 70s. He's in a room with all the rich and powerful people in Babylon. He stood before this king who with a word could have his head removed. They've all been drinking a lot, but they're now confused and fearful. What a time to preach this sermon. And Daniel preaches this sermon and the title to the sermon could be Foolish Rejection. Belshazzar, you fool for rejecting what you knew. The sermon starts with a history lesson, verses 18 to 21. It's a history lesson about Babylonian history, uh, but it's not from the perspective of Babylon. It's from the perspective of the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel begins, that's your father, Belshazzar. He was a great king. When he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, it's likely he means descendant. He was a great king. Daniel reminds Belshazzar, because the Most High God gave him sovereignty, greatness and glory and splendour. Verse 18. He reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar ruled the world with an almost godlike rule. That's verse 19. But that rule that was given him by God led him to pride. And now we get a retelling of the events of chapter 4. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened... With pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. The result of that pride led to humiliation. Verse 21, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And the point of this history lesson... Well, that's the end of verse 21. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Following the history lesson, Daniel moves towards application in his sermon. That's verse 22. This account, you see, wasn't new to Belshazzar. He'd heard it before. He'd probably heard it more than once. Belshazzar had been brought up in the modern day equivalent of a Christian household. He knew the truth. He would have heard Nebuchadnezzar's God glorifying gospel from the end of chapter 4. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said of the Lord God His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Belshazzar, he knew all this. And yet what had he done? He had foolishly rejected it. He had been so foolish to think that he could start a fight with the Lord of heaven and win. Daniel spells this foolishness out to him in verse 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven you had the goblets from his temple brought to you and, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see, hear or understand. How foolish to provoke the very God who holds your life. Verse 23 again, but you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. 
And the very reason that God had sent the hand to write on the wall is because of Belshazzar's foolish rejection. This reminds us this evening that it's never simply enough to be acquainted with the truth. These verses are a grave warning to all who hear the word of God but refuse to receive the word of God. It's a warning to everyone who would look in the mirror of God's word and walk away and forget what they look like. It is a warning to those who grow up here in the gospel and yet walk away from Jesus because they think it's the clever thing to do. When we know the truth, but the truth does not humble us and lead us to worship, we are simply clones of King Belshazzar. And it's actions such as these that lead to the writing on the wall. Verse 24, therefore he has sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And now it's only after this sermon highlighting Belshazzar's foolish rejection that Daniel finally gets to explain the writing. And the writing explains that the final day of reckoning has arrived. And that's verses 24 to 31, final reckoning. The structure of Daniel at the top of the handout shows us that chapter 4 and 5 belong together. They're right at the centre of this section running from chapters 2 to 7. And chapters 4 to 5 are similar in lots of ways. Both start with proud kings, safe and secure. And then comes revelation from God that leaves the kings trembling and fearful. And Daniel appears in in both chapter 4 and 5 to interpret the revelation. But the end of chapters 4 and 5 are very different, aren't they? For Nebuchadnezzar, there's salvation. For Belshazzar, there's judgment. See, God is sovereign in salvation and he's sovereign in judgment. As Nebuchadnezzar came to understand, God does whatever he pleases. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's no recourse to a higher authority, no appeals to a court of arbitration. There's no ombudsman that you can call if you don't like what God does. And now has come Belshazzar's final reckoning. And it's only in verse 25 that we actually begin to find out what the finger has written. The words there, many, many, tekel, parsin. These three words uh, each represent a coin. It might be something similar to like a merchant shouting out old-fashioned money terms, a miner, a shekel and two halves. But each of these coins took their names from a, from a verb. And Daniel understands the meaning. So meany means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, that comes from the root verb meaning weighed. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Perez, the verb is divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And what is striking about chapter 5 is that there's no call from Daniel for the king to repent. Remember, there was that in chapter 4. As the interpretation of the vision came to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel urged him to break off from his sins, to, to do what was right. He said, maybe your prosperity will continue. But with Belshazzar, there's no such words. With the sudden appearing of the writing on the wall, judgment has already come. Belshazzar has reached the point of no return. 
In his sovereignty, God may save those who oppose him. But he can also judge those who oppose him. And God here in Daniel chapter 5 is exerting his sovereign rule over and above the rule of King Belshazzar. The books are opened, the day of account has come and the hammer falls. People hate this rule that God has over them. That's why they foolishly reject it. They like to think that they're the ones who call the shots. They like to say, I did it my way. But the rejection of God's rule changes nothing. Because the fact is we are not God and one day we will all know that. It might look really clever when you're sat with a thousand nobles to test the patience of God and ignore the truth that you know. But on the day of reckoning, everything looks very different. In verse 29, after the judgment has been pronounced, Belshazzar is still trying to play the role of king, giving out presence and power. But they're no longer his to give out. His rule has come to an end. And the delusion that he's living in, in verse 29, is not going to last. Because in verse 30, judgment that's pronounced becomes judgment that's executed. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. There are different accounts in history of the fall of Babylon. The historian Herodotus uh, tells us that the river Euphrates flowed through the city of Babylon and that the Medes and Persians conquered the city of Babylon by diverting the river Euphrates and lowering the water level and so being able to enter under the city wall via the river. What that means is that while Belshazzar is partying at the start of chapter 5. The Medes and Persians are already well on the way to entering the city of Babylon. So that means that even while Belshazzar's feasting, his demise is unfolding. As you read these final verses of chapter 4, it's hard not to think of the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12. Remember, we looked at this recently on a Sunday morning. The man who built up all of his possessions and then he was just going to kick back and take it easy and God said to him you fool this very night where life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself that sounds like the judgment on King Belshazzar doesn't it days are numbered been weighed in the scales and found wanted kingdom divided Verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at age 62. That lands us in the year 539 BC and that is the very year that King Cyrus, the king of Persia, makes a statement about the exiles of Jerusalem. Let me read to you uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and the final verse. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. 
Babylon has fallen. The kings of Babylon are no more. And yet here at the end of chapter 5, Daniel, the exile from Jerusalem, remains. And he is about to set out for the city of God. Isn't that glorious? Doesn't that encourage us to live faithfully under God's rule in this world while we're in exile looking to the heavenly city? There are some uh, questions on your sheet that will help us uh, think through some applications. Please have a look through those. uh, And if you're in home groups, discuss those next week. Really, the main points of application are there's a warning here for us to heed. We don't want to play fast and loose with the truth of God's word. We want to humble ourselves before the Lord God of heaven. The implications of this passage are also universal. Remember, chapters 2 to 7 are written in the universal language of the day, Aramaic. And chapters 4 and 5 are right at the heart of this section of Daniel. They remind us that God is sovereign in salvation and judgment. They remind us that there's a day of reckoning coming for every person. They urge us now to humble ourselves before the Lord. Because there will come a day when it will be too late. Chapter 5 also fuels us to live faithfully to the Lord God while we live in this world. A world that opposes him. Chapter 5 reminds us that the pride of this world, the pride of our sinful human hearts is fragile. It will not stand. Those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. It means we do not need to be taken in by the false promises of Babylon or be afraid or be afraid to speak the truth. Please do have a look through those questions and then take time to respond to God in prayer.